In one of the many Thanksgiving services held at the end of the Falklands War, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, annoyed the government by praying for the dead and the wounded on the Argentine side as well as the British. Instead of displaying triumphant nationalism, he said that war was a terrible thing and that there would be deeply held mourning on both sides. A government that has just concluded a war doesn't always like to be remembered that God loves its enemies too. But this is the truth that Jonah has had to face. When he's sent on his mission to Nineveh, there's something more in the back of his mind than just the brutality that these people were capable of. We heard a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, what interesting tortures they could devise for their enemies. But there's more at stake than this. As Jonah's contemporaries Amos and Hosea have already indicated, this Assyrian nation that Nineveh is a leading city of will, if spared by God, carry off Jonah's own people into exile within a few short decades. Jonah's been sent to preach repentance to them, but has a powerful vested interest in them not repenting. If Nineveh smashed, he might be thinking, the threat's gone, and maybe my people will finally get the hint. If it isn't, well, there's still a threat, and my people might get it anyway, but they haven't so far. Even after Hosea had to marry that awful woman, I mean, what does it take But in the belly of the fish, Jonah's learned a painful lesson. In decrying the worship of idols, he acknowledges that Nineveh, with all its wealth, with all its power, with all its wonderful ways to turn people inside out, physically and mentally, is merely in God's hands too. And perhaps he's also forsaken some idols of his own. Bitterness, fear, prejudice mistrust in God's providence. And God could have cut Jonah loose, chosen someone else. And maybe if Jonah had kept resisting after his ride in the fish's belly, he would have done. As D.H. Lawrence once wrote in a poem, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it's an even more fearful thing to fall out of them. But God cares enough about Jonah and about us, to keep pulling us back on track. And so the slate is wiped clean, the command is given again, and this time off Jonah goes. He's probably a sight to behold, coming out of the belly of a fish, squashed, emaciated, half-suffocated, bleached a bit by its stomach juices maybe. He shakes the fish vomit out of his sandals gathers up what's left of his dignity and goes and does what God has told him to do. So Jonah has repented. He's literally turned back onto the course he should be following. This idea is inherent in various root words. In Hebrew, shev nacham, to feel sorrow and turn around again. And in Greek, metanoia, a change of heart, mind and consciousness due to increased perception, revelation, wisdom. And he walks. 
Nineveh is not a coastal place. It's estimated by some commentators that from the place where the fish dropped him to Nineveh Central may have been a trek through the desert of about 900 miles. It's more than a physical walk too. When the Bible uses the word halak in Hebrew here to describe his going, it's using the same word used in Genesis when God tells Abraham to walk before him and be blameless. It's the walk of faith and obedience that's required of all of us. Jonah is walking now in God's way. So what has characterised his repentance? The Puritan Thomas Watson summarises repentance as this. Discernment of sin, sorrow for it, hatred of it, and turning from it. Motivated by a knowledge of our need of God's mercy, an awareness of what that mercy cost, and of the benefits to us of repentance. Jonah has yet to manage some of this, and of course he can't yet look to Christ except in a prophetic sense but he has been driven back to God. He's acknowledged that he is nothing, has nothing, without God's grace on his life, and he's acted accordingly. By contrast, perhaps, the writer Mark Twain, American novelist famous for Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, writes about his own wild youth and how violent occurrences in a place where he lived caused him to consider his life. He writes that there were awful nights, nights of despair, nights charged with death. After each tragedy, he says, I recognise this warning and I repented. Repented and begged, begged like a coward, begged like a dog. He recalls seeing the body of an old man murdered in the street and seeing that Somebody had placed a Bible on an old man's chest, a last thoughtful gesture, perhaps, but goes on to say something odd. He says that ever after, he dreamed of that Bible, not as a blessing to that old man, but crushing the breath out of him. Mark Twain had not allowed all this, all those conflicts in his spirit, to lead him to God. Rather, he became a bitter atheist who blamed God for the flaws of human nature, caused by our own fall and disobedience, and cursed him for placing the benefit, the burden, sorry, of repentance on us. As Second Corinthians have it, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So what's the difference? Most commentators would sum it up simply as this, Worldly sorrow is a sorrow for the damage that the sin may have done to the self through consequences and punishment. Godly sorrow is a sorrow for the sin itself that sees it for what it is, an affront against God and against another person if that's appropriate, and deals with it by coming back to God for mercy and strength, not just once, but time and time again. The Bible gives us so many examples of this wrong type of sorrow. We can perhaps think of Judas. When Matthew records his regret for betraying Christ, he uses not metanoia, but a similar word with a different meaning, centering more on the self-pity that caused his suicide. Or Cain and Abel, their rejected and accepted sacrifices and the different hearts that lay beside them, behind them. 
Jonah is a self-pitying sort, as we'll see when we look at chapter 4 in a couple of weeks. And the test he faces then reminds, um, reminds him and reminds us that repentance must be ongoing. As Jonathan put it last week, Jonah has been dragged back into God's will, kicking and screaming. But it's worth remembering that not everybody in Scripture who faces this test achieves even that. Mark Twain's sorrow was worldly sorrow. Not Jonah's godly repentance. Not the cry of Isaiah, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Not the cry of Peter confronted with a miracle catch of fish who said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Not the cry of the prophet Zechariah who prophesied that in the age of the spirit, our age, men would look on the pierced one, Jesus and mourn for what their sin had done to him. True repentance, then, leads us back to God to receive and lean on his strength. And it's in God's strength now that Jonah can do what God has told him to do. Well, Nineveh was a great city. Norwich, as we're reminded every time we enter it from the motorway, is a fine city. But it's a fine city, isn't it, that needs the gospel that we have. In 2012, a a census reported that in Norwich, nearly double the national average for the cities that were examined claimed to have no faith at all, about 56,000 people, though with perhaps a telling flippancy about people's attitude to the relevance of the question, some of those people did identify as Jedi Knights and, and things like that. Now, there's always questions about how total these kind of surveys are, and we know that Norwich has many vibrant churches, large and small, but there are many more outside the doors, aren't there? And in a society that's lost its sense of both sin and God to a large extent, the message perhaps matters more than ever. We may not be called to stand up and say, Yet 40 days and Norwich South will be destroyed. That would be interesting. But we do have a message of eternal value and significance. And perhaps for ourselves also, when we think about penitence, alone in our times with the Bible and prayer at home and corporately, when we say the confession together, do we ever just zone out of it mentally? It's perilously easy to do, isn't it, when you say it all the time. And it's important, especially before the Lord's Supper, perhaps, to bring the week's mistakes before God. Think about where we may have failed in kindness, purity, strength, honesty. But perhaps, like Jonah needs to, We need to also be addressing the deeper besetting attitudes and mindsets and wrong loves that we might need God to help us with. That we, born again and spirit-filled as we are, are still tempted to place on the thrones of our hearts. To do as Colossians tells us, to continually put to death what is ungodly in us. Perhaps 
because as the message version of that puts it, we need to be done with the old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes that we've stripped off and put in the fire. Now we're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of our new way of life is custom-made by the Creator with his label on it. And would we strive for all this in communion with God, in whom is not only the ability, but also the desire. Again, as the D.H. Lawrence poem puts it, let me never know what I would be if I have fallen out of your hands, the hands of the living God. Let me never know myself apart from the living God. Let's consider secondly then, Nineveh's repentance. Among the gods honoured by the Assyrian peoples were a fish goddess named Nanshi and a god named Dagon, often represented as a fishman because his name contains the word dag that means fish. So when Jonah appears on that shore from out of the mouth of a fish, God is using their culture to give them a prophet from himself who emerges from something that they revere. God's good news then meets with people where they are, even if what it has to say is unchanging and inviolate. And I'm sure that this image of the prophet emerging from the mouth of a fish would have been excitedly transmitted from person to person, town to town, as Jonah neared Nineveh. And what are we told about what happens when he gets there, as he does his three-day journey through that city? Simply that the Ninevites believed God. Unlike Israel, they responded straight away to God's warning. They understood that their great city, a mighty pinnacle of secular human achievement, a mighty fortress, could be swatted into nothingness by God, as though it was a fly. Because even though Israel is the chosen race, God had always been reaching out to the wider world. The Old Testament is full of God's revealing himself to people of other nations. Abraham, Joseph and Moses in Egypt, the Ark of the Covenant in the Philistine Temple, where the statue of their God is smashed to the ground, the healing of Naaman the Syrian. All of these show people from outside the covenant God's power. One of the reasons for the Israelite sojourn in Egypt in Genesis and Exodus is given to us in Genesis 15. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When God allows a nation to be destroyed, it's not before they've been given every chance to repent. Whilst using Assyria, Samaria, Egypt, to humble his own stubborn people. He's again trying to show these cultures who he is, the one true God. And no doubt the Ninevites know about some of these interventions by God in other places. They might sadly not know him as the one true God, but they know he's not to be messed with. Doubtless they remember too the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so... When God comes knocking, they listen more than his own people do. And the result is astonishing. 
For a start, it's top-down. The king of Nineveh, who up to now has probably been more decadent and brutal than the emperor Nero on acid, issues a decree that the nation must repent. I can't think of more than two or three times when Israel and Judah do this. On the um, 26th of May, 1940, King George VI of England called for a national day of prayer to be held for the British army trapped at Dunkirk, called for the nation to turn back to God in a spirit of repentance. These are some of those cues of people. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, when a nation's ruler fears God. Do we contend for that today? Two events immediately followed. Firstly, a violent storm arose over the Dunkirk region, grounding the Luftwaffe that had been slaughtering the British soldiers. And then secondly, a great calm descended on the Channel, which allowed hundreds of tiny boats to set sail and rescue up to 335,000 soldiers. This was referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk, and Sunday, June the 9th, was officially appointed as a day of national thanksgiving. Proverbs 14.34 tells us this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but wickedness destroys a people. This is a truth that the king of Nineveh isn't dicing with. He puts off his fine robes and he wears sackcloth. This is a symbol of penitence or mourning, the sackcloth often worn with ashes. It was made of goat's hair and was deeply painful to wear. We're told, aren't we, that they even cover their animals. This may seem odd, and I guess they were thankful that the RSPCA weren't around in those days, but... It makes sense if we remember that this was a time that often measured wealth in livestock rather than money. We remember how often in the Old Testament, Job is one example of somebody's wealth being reckoned in camels and sheep rather than coins. And so what this is saying is this. They're covering the thing that gives them status, financial security, perhaps self-worth, and saying, this needs humbling, this needs surrendering to God too. It's worthless compared with the compelling need that I have at this moment to be right with God. This need that is driving the Ninevites to humble themselves on even a vague off chance that God might, just might, Have mercy on them. What in our minds tonight, I wonder, matters more to us in our sense of self-worth, security, identity, priority, than being a child of God? What might we need to put sackcloth over? But of course this physical act only works if it's the outward sign of an inward condition. As Joel tells us, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And God 
does relent. Some commentators get a bit worried about this as if God seeming to change his mind may mean that his promises may be as transient as his anger. But the answer is simply this, isn't it? That mercy was and is his purpose all along and destruction, once again, is only a last resort. As Second Peter puts it, God is not willing that any should perish but wants all to come to repentance. So we spoke a little earlier about Jonah's repentance needing to be ongoing. What about Nineveh's? Did it last? Well, yes, for a time. But a century and a half later, the prophet Nahum would also make that trek to Nineveh to forecast their destruction. The book of Nahum blasts the Ninevites' cruelty and pride, and this time their destruction is around the corner. Again, repentance has to be ongoing. And we know, don't we, that many have legitimately come to God in crisis or come back to God, drawn closer to God in crisis, be it danger or prison or whatever. A cousin of mine is married to a man who became a Christian while doing time in prison for armed robbery. Today he's a vicar. But whether it's coming to him for the first time or the ongoing process for all of us of walking with him, clinging to him, not drifting from him, it's got to be more than an emotional response that goes up or down or cools when threat or first excitement has passed. It's got to be rooted in a walk with God that gets progressively deeper. As Jonah then looks amazed at the results of his work, it's for next week's, uh, the week after next talk, to consider how he responds to the unexpected and unwanted salvation of Nineveh. But I want to, in closing, before we move on to other things, very quickly just pull together some final thoughts about the legacy of all that we've considered tonight. Every year on Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, the book of Jonah is read. Why? For the Jews, it serves as an iconic reminder that while no one can outrun God's justice, equally, his mercy is also everlasting. For us, there's perhaps something deeper, too. Jonah offers us a type or a shadow of the Christ to come. In his book, Paradoxology, Chris Candia draws various parallels and contrasts between Jonah and Jesus, among them this. The fact that just as Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so Jesus will be three days and three nights in the grave. This parallel The sign of Jonah is held up by Jesus to our Lord's own generation. A sign that says, you want evidence of who I am? Look at this sign. See what this sign, the example of this prophet, says about me. Jonah is also revered by Islam. This is Tel Nebi Yunus, the mound of Jonah. Thought to be his tomb, although the place where he's born claims that honour as well. 
um, erected by the Ninevites in honor of the prophet who came to them. Ultimately, in Muslim times, a mosque was built over it, and sadly, I think that in recent years, it may have been destroyed by ISIS. But that was a mark of Ninevites' gratitude to the messenger who came from God out of the mouth of a fish. So what's the fruit of the repentance we've examined tonight? Well, the fruit of Nineveh's repentance is that for a generation at least they get to not be exterminated, which is always a handy thing. But the fruit of Jonah's repentance is this. Restored to right standing with God and man, yes, with another test of attitude to face. Success and the mission beyond his dreams and, yes, beyond his desires. Revered by Christianity in the sign of Jonah, revered as well by our parent faith, Judaism, and also by Islam, and an honoured place in the Old Testament typography of Jesus that points to the forthcoming Messiah. In the end, all that is really not a bad legacy for the prophet who ran away from the task he'd been given to do. We're going to turn to God now in prayer as Lindsay leads our intercessions and then um, as the band leads us in worship once again, Martin will come to begin uh, preparing communion.